Let's, uh, let's start off with some prayer right now. Father God, we love you so much. <clears throat> Father, I thank you, Lord, for your presence. We don't take that for granted. We thank you, Lord God, that you are here among us. Lord, we walk in these doors and we, we, we carry the weight of the week that we just had in these doors. And we thank you, Father God, that you give us this chance to just lay all that stuff down at the cross, Lord. We lay it down. We take the burden off of our shoulders and we put it on you, Lord God, because you said to give it to you. We thank you, Father God, that you have our best in mind, Father, that you have a way out where there seems no way out, Father God. You have a wonderful tomorrow in store for every person, Lord, and it's all for your glory. We praise you. Lord, I thank you for your anointing this morning. I'm desperate for that, Lord God. I don't want to say say a single word without you. I thank you, Lord God, for opening our hearts and our minds and our ears, Lord, to hear from you, whatever it is that you want to communicate to us today. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this week... Christian churches across the world are going to be entering into the season of Lent. Anybody ever heard of Lent? All right. Uh, This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, in fact. Now, Lent is one of those things that, you know, evangelical churches such as ours, we we don't really get into, you know, like all hardcore as much as more liturgical churches. Um, Lent isn't something uh, you can find chapter and verse about in the Bible. It's simply something on the Christian calendar that it's it's the 40 days before Easter. And for many Christians, it's a time of reflection and repentance. It's a time many Christian communities all over this globe are going to take these 40 days and come together uh, to, to fast, to pray, uh, and to prepare their hearts in anticipation see, of the joyous Resurrection Day, Easter, that is to come. So uh, we, we celebrate that. Um, so it's this time of kind of somber reflection that, in a way, it provides sort of contrast to the glorious celebration of Easter that follows it. And so I think it's really fitting that we spend a few of these weeks uh, leading up towards Easter. We're just going to spend four weeks on this, exploring the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah. Because Jonah is itself a story of sin followed by repentance. It's a story of folks falling on their knees and covering themselves in ashes, crying out to God for his mercy. It was an interesting thing when I was in Israel. I was hearing some more about this, this day in Israel called Yom Kippur. Many of you have probably heard of Yom Kippur. Um, and Jonah, it turns out, has a very special role uh, to the Jewish people, and especially to that day. It's read, the book is read from start to finish. It's a really short book. It's like 42 verses. You can read it in about 10 minutes. Um, it's read from start to finish on the day of Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish day of atonement, sort of their national day of repentance. So it's sort of like, you could think of it as like their version of, of Lent. And they take the time to study Jonah, because as the Jewish scholars put it, we are all Jonah. That's what they would say. We are all Jonah. We all tend to run from the call of God. We all run and we all need him to recapture us in his mercy and in his love. So, so it's going to be pretty cool. We're going to have a good time. We'll talk about Jonah. Um, now, a couple of caveats. I am aware that as we enter this story of Jonah, there's a couple of hurdles that we have to get past. Okay, let's talk about those. First of all, I, there is this sort of need to rescue 
Jonah from our uh, Disneyland imagination of what's what's happening here. If you grew up in the church, if you're like me, you grew up in the church, when you there's a good chance that when you heard that we were going to be studying Jonah, good chance you, you would be forgiven for, for your first thought being, why? That's a kid's story, right? That's what, that was written in the children's Bible, wasn't it? <laughs> right? And if you were born after 1980, there's a really good chance that as soon as we said Jonah, you immediately pictured dancing and singing vegetables um, in place of actual characters. Uh, I remember, I remember uh, when the whole VeggieTales revolution, you know, came out. Everybody was excited, and I was, I was sitting there thinking, oh, this is going to completely screw up my kids for the rest of their life. <laughs> right? um, they will forever hear the name Jonah and think of a man that looks like an asparagus. Um, and don't even get me started on the peas that throw, like, slurpees down from the walls of Jericho. Right? So that's one thing. We kind of got to rescue the, the story back a little bit. The second thing... Um, about Jonah, that can be a hurdle. There's a little bit of disagreement among biblical scholars, among Christians. Some Christians see Jonah as, as literal history, that it, it really happens, just facts that really happen. Some Christians and biblical scholars view it as a parable or an allegory, something that teaches a lesson. And there's like a story, there's a, one school that says, like, Jonah represents Israel, and the whale is like the Assyrian exile, and then they come back, and this sort of thing. Uh, and other people just talk, well, no, it's more of a metaphor to tell, tell, teach us about the heart of man, the heart of God. Um, so here's, here's something I want to say this morning. I want to put your mind at ease. If you're here today, and the story of Jonah is like one of those weird roadblocks that make you a little bit uncomfortable. You're like, you know, I understand God. I love God. Yeah, I, I know my, I need God. I know I need Jesus in my life. He's going to change my life. But do I really have to believe like a guy got swallowed by a fish in order to be a Christian? Well, I would say this. No. You don't have to believe that a guy got swallowed by a fish to be a Christian. You can absolutely believe that Jonah is a, is a parable or, or a metaphor, you can, or you can believe that it happened literally. The point is not really, did Jonah and the whale happen? The point of Jonah is that it happens. Jonah happens every single day. We are Jonah. Now, I happen to believe that it is uh, historical and based on actual events. And as we study the book, I'll, I'll uh, point out little hints here and there that I think give weight to that viewpoint. Um, but I don't want this to be a stumbling block. If you're here today and you're seeking Christ, and just the story of Jonah is like, come on, man. Uh, don't let it be a stumbling block, okay? Because this really isn't the story of a man and a fish. It's the story of a man and his God, okay? So I wanted to get that out of the way so we can just really enjoy it and jump in here. And uh, who knows, there might be little things that happen throughout this series that, you know, change your mind about things. Either way, here we go. Um, you know what? Let me, let me say this too. Just, I'm, I'm kind of, you uh, use my, my, my new lead pastor title here. Can I be a pastor for a second? Christians, friends of all shapes and sizes. To be a follower of Christ requires that you believe in one true and literal event. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born, that he lived, he died for our sins, and was rose, rose again on the third day. There's a lot of arguments among 
Christendom in the Christian world. There's all kinds of arguments about what happened, what didn't happen, how did it happen, creation, you get into science, you get into you know, Noah's Ark, all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of arguments out there. You know, free will versus predeterminism, all this sort of thing. All of that stuff is interesting. It's interesting to talk about. But what you need to believe, what we have to be in agreement on, is that Jesus Christ died and rose for our sins. That's, that's the most important thing. Jesus said, the scripture is very clear what it takes to be saved. is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It also tells us what it takes to be a disciple, and that is to walk in love to walk in unity, to walk in humility. So we want to practice a whole lot of that. So we always practice, we try to practice a whole lot of love, humility, unity. Okay? Uh, praise God. Either way, I will say this. We know that none other than Jesus himself referred to Jonah in his ministry. And Jesus apparently took the story as divine revelation. Now, I'm not in Jesus' mind, so I can't tell if he thought it was events that happened or if it was a metaphor, but apparently for Jesus, what was important is the book is communicating and revealing who God is to us. It it wasn't a story for for little kids back then. Um, It's a story that functions as a powerful revelation of God. And Jonah also reveals something about ourselves. It, It tells us what God's like, and it shows us what the human heart is like. Okay, here's something else that's not really debated at all, and that is that Jonah was a real man. Uh, there's, there's documentation, there's evidence. Uh, uh, Jonah was a northern prophet. Uh, during the time when Israel it divided into two kingdoms, you remember, everybody remember that? So about 750 B.C., 8th century B.C., uh, Israel, the, the whole nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, and the northern half was called, anybody know? Israel just to make things extra confusing. <laughs> they split in two, and the northern half said, well, we're keeping the name. The southern kingdom uh, called themselves Judah. And so sometimes in the Bible, you'd be reading about Israel, and it, it can be a little confusing if you're like, well, is this the whole country, or is this the northern kingdom? But this was during, after the country had split in two, and so Jonah uh, lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II. We had a wonderful opportunity when we were in Israel a few weeks ago to travel all through that land and go up to the very northern tip, most, northernmost uh, tip of Israel and see uh, where Jeroboam created his capital. He wanted a capital because Jerusalem was down in the southern kingdom, so he needed his own capital. And so that was really cool to see that with, with our own eyes. Um, so Jonah, uh, we find out in 2 Kings... 1425, that Jonah was an honored prophet. He was a real dude. He was an honored prophet. And he worked in that same whole Galilean territory that uh, Jesus did, most of his ministry. So he was in that same area. So, so today, here we are. We're going to jump into the chapter one of this fascinating book. We're going to do this series in four parts. There's four chapters. So today, we're going to tackle chapter one. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Here is verse one. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go... Okay, first of all, I love that word. All right? I love this one little word, go. This is, this is a, an important word in the Bible. It's one of the most critical words in the Bible. Jesus said, what? Go, make disciples of all nations. He made it really short and sweet. Go. For, that means for us, for the believer, it's always go time. For us... It's go. It, we, at Generations, we have committed as a, as a community to become disciples who make disciples, right? Because that's what disciples do. So if you're a part of our community and you're seeking after Christ, at whatever spiritual stage you're at, 
That means you too. That means you're a disciple and that your job is to go make disciples. And so everybody makes disciples of generations. So this could be kind of our marching orders in one word. Go. Okay, he said, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out. This word means cry out or preach. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So here Jonah is told by God to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the city's wickedness has not gone unnoticed and God's just not going to stand for it anymore. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, big superpower empire at the time it, it, in modern-day Iraq. In fact, Nineveh is right on the banks of what today we know of as the city of Mosul. Um, which we hear in the news a whole lot. And so Nineveh is up there. It's very powerful. Nineveh, uh, the Assyrians are, are kind of hated by the Israelites. They're, they stand for everything Israel does. Um, Nineveh is a massive city. At the time, it was twice as big as Babylon. And Babylon is the one we hear a lot about, the, you know, this grand, glorious city. Nineveh was twice as big as Babylon. One of the records say that it took three days to walk all the way across Nineveh through its neighborhoods. And it was a rich city. It's a rich city. It's a city of power. Um, and Jonah is told to go prophesy basically this kind of turn or burn kind of message to Nineveh, right? Turn or burn. Now, normally, here's the thing about prophets in the Old Testament. Normally, prophets were called to go prophesy to their own people. That's what we see elsewhere in the Bible. The purpose primarily in the Old Testament was the prophets would enforce God's covenant with Israel. So they would go to God's people and tell them all the ways that they weren't you know, fulfilling the covenant. They would prophesy to God's people about their sin and, and breaking of covenant. So this is very unusual already in Jonah, God calling him to go preach to people who don't know Yahweh. They don't know anything about Yahweh, right? In fact, this is the only place in the Old Testament that we see God calls a prophet to do this, to go preach to people who are not his people. Now, if you're a prophet, you have to understand, it seems like this is the best job you could possibly get, the best calling you could possibly get. Because understand, prophets are not priests. Two different things. Priests are kind of like the Old Testament uh, equivalent of a pastor, right? Your pastor, your priest, or something like that. Prophets are not the sort of mushy, compassionate, hey, let me wrap my arm around you and help atone for your sins type. This is not what a, a prophet is. A pro- the prophet is the dude who barges into your living room, with his, puts his finger in your face with all guns blazing, and tells you how many ways you have disappointed God, right? right? They, 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 so there's a good chance. Here's a good chance for Jonah to get to do that to real full-blown pagans. I mean, prophets would live for this. You think a guy like Jonah would be like, this is awesome. I have got so much delicious judgmental fury just built up inside me. When do we start, right? These guys are wicked. God's going to strike them dead. When do we leave? Let's suit up and start screaming, right? That's what a prophet should be like, right? That's what they live for. But he doesn't react like that. He does just the opposite. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice a repetition there? That's on purpose. That's on purpose. The narrator here is, is kind of giving us a little wink. Um, he's... he's Tarshish, we believe, is probably uh, in modern-day southern Spain, on the tip of Spain. Um, Now, so 
What the writer wants us to understand here is that Jonah is not just saying nah to what God tells him to do. He's actually going to a place that is the furthest, most western point in the known world. Right? He wants to go across the Mediterranean Sea, which they called the Great Sea. Like, that was it, the Mediterranean. Right? And go to Tarshish, Spain. You didn't go past there. There'd be dragons, right? You fall (laughs) off. That's where you fall off. I mean, they had no concept. So Tarshish here in the area wants us to understand. In Jonah's mind or in the mind here, there's some correlation between the presence of the Lord. Notice that's repeated twice. Presence of the Lord, presence of the Lord. And if you want to get away from the presence of the Lord, apparently the thing you do is you go to Tarshish. That other direction. Nineveh is east. And he heads the exact other direction. So what's Jonah's problem? What is his problem? Why? This is what prophets do. They live for this, and Jonah runs the other way. Why? Well, at this point in the story, we don't know yet. The book doesn't tell us yet. But, you know, there's all sorts of reasons that we run from God. So let's talk about us for a second. Because we are Jonah. Sometimes God calls us to do all sorts of things. And there's just something inside us that is at war. Part of us... Part of us may want to obey God, but there's something inside that just wants to react by running. Anybody ever been there? Sometimes we run from God because we're ashamed of our sin. We know what we've done. Other people may not know, but we know. And you look back and you go, man, how can I, how can I keep running back to those loving, gracious arms of Jesus? I keep, when I've been struggling with this thing for five years, ten years, all my life, I keep struggling with this thing, and I keep going back to Jesus. I feel like I'm slapping him in the face. And so you fear that maybe God's not going to accept you. There's going to be a point where God just doesn't accept you. And so you run. We run from God because we don't believe he's really good. We think... We don't think he really cares about us. We can't reconcile certain things, so we just run to get away from him. <clears throat> we run from God because we're attracted to things, let's face it, that we love more than God. We don't like to say that. We like to sugarcoat it and say, no, 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 I love God. I'm just struggling with this thing. The truth is, it's something we love more than God. And we believe those things are more satisfying than God's presence is. Sometimes we run because we can't understand how God could let us experience uh, the pain that we've been through. And we hear God is loving and he's good, and then we look at this pain and we're and suffering, and we're just left going, I can't, I can't reconcile this pain with God's goodness, so I'm just going to run. Sometimes it's just that we're burned out of our faith. We get burned out. We're like, you know, I tried this Christian thing. I grew up with it. I read the Bible. I prayed. I went to the classes. I've done everything in my power. And I still don't really feel accepted by God. And so we run. We run because of rebellion. We run because of shame, because of doubt, because of idolatry, because we're hurting. We're just burned out religiously. There's all sorts of reasons. We're tired of working for our acceptance. And so we run. Here's what's interesting about all this is how dumb we are. Because <laughs> we're running from God. Right? God. Which, if you think about it for a second, it's kind of like trying to jump off the earth. If I try really, what are you doing? I'm getting out of here, man. <laughs> right? That's what running from God is like. It's just not going to happen. You're like, dude, you know, you want to grab Jonah and go, you know you can't do this. 
right? And Jonah's just like, yeah, but I'm going to try. I'm going to give it a shot. You ever seen that news footage? It usually comes on right during your favorite show or something like that, and it's like, special bulletin report or whatever it is, you know, news flash, and it comes on, and it's some, like, poor sap running from the police, and he, like, jumps out of his car, and he's running. You just see, and, you know, and the cameras are all on him. He's running, running his little heart out, you know, and the, like, shirts come off, and he's just running as hard as he can, you know, and he's giving it everything he's got, and, like, the helicopter above him is just lazily following. <laughs> oh, ooh, he's hidden behind a dumpster. Good. There he goes into a field. That'll work. Yeah, and the tall grass. That's brilliant. Right? And you're like, this never works. It never, ever works. But he's going for it, right? Because you never know. You never know. Maybe this time. And you're just watching him going like, SMH, man. Come on. Just give up already, right? We do this, though, all the time. We do it all the time. We run. I think... I think, we, I think we run from God many times because we feel like if we just sort of ignore him long enough, he'll ignore us. Like, I'll, I'll run to my sin. He'll just finally get so impatient and frustrated, he'll give up. He'll leave me alone, move on to other people. But he doesn't. He is relentless. He doesn't give up and move on to other people. We think our running is the end of the story. We're like, hey, God, I moved on to a new chapter in my life. See ya. And for whatever reason, he stays in the game with us. He stays in the game. And God isn't finished with Jonah either. Jonah thinks, well, I'm out of here. End of that story. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, there's these sailors here on this ship, and they start freaking out. Now, remember, these are, these are pagan sailors, okay? These aren't Jewish sailors. There were no Jewish sailors. We, one of the interesting things we learned when we were in Israel is that Israel, if you notice in the Old Testament, Israel was never a seafaring nation. You notice that? There's like one time where the Mediterranean is mentioned, and it's Jonah getting thrown into it, Right? <laughs> Israel's not a, they're, they're not shipbuilders. And we were taught by our, our interesting guide, he told us it's because Israel doesn't have trees. Where, where in the Bible do you hear when Solomon was building his temple? Where did he get his trees? <laughs> Lebanon, right? Lebanon, which is still there today. Trees, beautiful forests, big, wonderful trees up in Lebanon. Israel, it's like scrub brush, right? So it's, it's kind of like the difference between like where we live here in East Texas and, and the hill country. Right? So the hill country is kind of like Israel, right? There's not big trees. And so they were never a seafaring people. I mean, we look in the New Testament, uh, they, they just got on the Sea of Galilee, which is really a big lake, and that freaked them out, right? Storms came up, and they thought they were all going to die. So you can imagine them, like, getting on the Mediterranean. They just, they, they were, that was not what they were about. Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that. <laughs> so these sailors, that's my point. My, my point, these sailors were definitely, these were pagan sailors, Phoenicians probably. Uh, they were the shipbuilders of the day. Um, verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, Help me, Oprah Winfrey! Help me, Donald Trump! They're each crying out. And then... (laughs) And then they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So these sailors, these guys are... It's kind of a religious free-for-all, right? They're all praying to different gods, just hoping someone upstairs is listening and will save their lives. 
And when that doesn't work, they go to plan B, which is throw stuff in the water to lighten the ship. That couldn't have been an easy decision to make because that's their cargo. That's the whole reason they're sailing. You know, that's their, their livelihood, their money. Um, but they're at their wit's end. They're throwing everything in the water. That doesn't help. And, and notice during this entire storm, Jonah is below deck, sound asleep. Sound asleep. It's like he put God out of his mind. He, he put the worries of the world out of his mind. He put the, he put the, you know, the, the worries of others out of his mind. He doesn't care about anybody. Because Jonah, in fleeing from God, he thought that he was done with God at this point. Right? There was this idea back then. There's this concept of local deities. And back then, the, the different peoples of the world, they believed, their, they believed in their gods, but they believed that the power of their gods extended to the borders of their country. You know, and so you see this a lot of times when you would in the Old Testament, there would be people or if you cross the border into another country, you'd make a sacrifice to their God. Right. Because you felt like, well, now I'm in this land, so I've got to sacrifice to this God. Well, Jonah apparently has this concept that God, his his presence ends at the beach (laughs) and that he is on the boat and that God is not out in the water. Right. So uh, where are we? Verse six. The captain came. He said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So then what comes next is they get really desperate and illogical like people do when they panic. And they start rolling dice to figure out who to blame. Come, let us cast lots so that we can know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. What do you know? (laughs) And so they start grilling him. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come from. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? By the way, it sounds just like Israeli security when you land in Tel Aviv. (laughs) They're they're hardcore. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Which is kind of stretching the truth, right? I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So apparently at some point he got on the boat. He told them, I just like picture, like, Jonah, you know, like, he's getting on the boat, he, like, goes to the little bar, he's got his, like, peacoat jacket on, you know, he's sitting there, he orders a drink, and they're like, what are you here for, sailor? And he's like, I'm running from the Lord. They're like, all right, that sounds crazy. And then they're like, oh, yeah, you're that guy, you're that guy, running from the Lord. So this freaks them out, and the seas get rougher and rougher, and then they cry out in verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah, at this point, Jonah's the guy on the news who who finally realizes that he's hiding out in the tall grass, and the helicopter still sees him, and he stands up, hands up, and says, don't shoot. Jonah realizes he's been caught. In verse 12, Jonah said, pick me up, just hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Moment of clarity for Jonah. Now these pagan sailors, to their credit, they... uh, they try to think of another way. They, they says they try to row as hard as they can to the shore. I imagine once they realize this God is angry with Jonah, they probably don't want to make the God angry by, you know, killing his prophet either. So they're, you know, they're thinking, well, we'll get to the shore, we'll dump him off, we'll say, sorry, God, no harm done, he's all yours, and then be on their way. Um, 
Notice too, notice too to, to the Jewish readers of this story. This is a story about an Israelite prophet handpicked by God in the midst. He's in the midst of these pagan sailors. Who's supposed to be the good guy in this story? Jonah, right? He's supposed to, you know, when you're listening to this, you're thinking, that's the good guy. But who in this story is turning their hearts to God and doing everything they can to preserve this guy's life? These pagan sailors, right? Who's the one who wants nothing to do with God? The prophet. This story is really interesting. It turns everything on its head. So the sailors try everything, they, uh, but of course nothing is working, and so they start praying again. But notice, Jonah's still not praying, right? He's like, we're not talking. <laughs> but this time, notice to the sailors, they're not praying to all their pagan gods, but they call out to the living God, and they say, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And verse 15 says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Some commentary on this suggests that this would have probably this would have had to have been done at at shore, at some port. So they got all the way back to a port and made sacrifices to God, the living God, and made vows to him. So their lives are changed out of all this. Jonah runs from the Lord. He thinks if he, if he does what he wants to do, that God's no longer in the picture. But there's that moment in verse 9 where he recognizes who he is. He admits, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord. He, re- he, re- he recognizes who God is. He is the creator of land and sea. And there's this moment where the sailors realize that they are dealing with the living God as well. So there comes this moment when we're running from the Lord where everything feels like it's in our control. We feel like we run from the Lord, it's in our control. I'm taking it back. I'm taking my life back into my own hands, right? And then something pops and we're forced to pay attention. All of our senses come alive, and we, we're forced to, to recognize this whole time we have been dealing with God. We've been dealing with God this whole time. We thought maybe it was just random life happening to us, all of its ups and downs, but the reality is that God is ever-present. He is always present. He's the conductor of creation, and his love is relentless, Right? You never escape God's presence. Amen. You can't escape his God. He, now, it's up to you to respond. It is up to you. He's not going to possess you and make you act or say something like a puppet. right? He's not going to usurp your free will. But he does want you to know, wherever you are this morning, that you're dealing with God. He's in your life, whether you realize it or not. <clears throat> now, I'm aware... I'm aware it's a Sunday morning. We're at Generations Church. Everybody here is perfect. Um, I'm probably not talking to a whole bunch of people who are completely running from God because you're at church today. That's probably like one of the first things you're going to give up, right? When you start running from God, you're not going to keep coming to church. But on the other hand, that's not necessarily true, is it? Because some of us have been running from God by trying to make it look on the outside like we're running to him. Some of us are being really religious. 
We're being really religious. We're working really hard. Or maybe we're just trying to keep people that we love or care about off our back. We're here, but we're not here for grace and for love. We're, we're, we're either just trying to earn our salvation with God, or we're just trying to earn the approval of people around us. So it's very possible we could have, you could be somebody who is really running from God. And the reality is this, that God is a loving God in a very scary way. <laughs> this God of Nineveh and the ocean, this is a loving God in a very scary way. As modern readers, we read this story and we think, you know, I don't really like, I don't, this doesn't really sit well with me. I don't, I don't like the fact that God wants Jonah to go yell at Nineveh and tell him, like, repent, you're wicked. That's kind of old-fashioned, right? We don't really do that anymore, surely. That doesn't seem very nice for God to say things like that to Nineveh. You're wicked. We don't like that God sends this furious storm on people who are just trying to live their life, right? They're just trying to make a buck. God's sending storms their way. But the reality is these acts are all acts of loving mercy. All of this. Not just for Jonah, but for a city of human beings, right? Filled with human beings that God loves. If there was no love, God could just let Nineveh descend into destruction and hell, right? If there was no love, he wouldn't pursue Jonah. There'd be no storm. Jonah could just wander off, become lost forever, eternally divorced from his destiny. If there was no love, if there was no love, God would never have revealed himself to these sailors, They would have just spent the rest of their lives throwing up vain prayers to false dead gods and just been blotted out by the sea. It's love that drives God to these acts, isn't it? The furious storm, the relentless chase, it's the jealous love of a father coming after Jonah and revealing himself to these sailors in the process. See, God is loving There's no mistake. He is loving, but that doesn't always mean he's cuddly. Right? He's God the Father. He's not God the Grandfather. He's God the Father. And there are are times. (laughs) You know the difference. (laughs) There are times that love is furious. There are times the love of God is a gale storm. Right? It's, It's not a, you know coddling, nuzzling, your cheek kind of love. It's, it's the wind blowing, the waves crashing in the midst of it. You might be thinking, what is happening here? God has left the building. But the truth is, sometimes to be engulfed by grace, sometimes it feels less like falling into a comfy bed than falling into a raging sea. And it's all grace. C.S. Lewis put it so well. He said this, you asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoke is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of conscientious magistrate. We all talk like this, right? (laughs) But the consuming fire himself, the love that made the world's persistent as the artist's love for his work, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. Wow. You want a loving God, you have one. You have a loving God. You asked for an ocean of grace, well, look out. Because that ocean is deep, and it is tempestuous, and it is filled with whales. Right? 
That is this ocean of grace that we so lightly sing about. God will not let you go quietly. If you're feeling tossed about, if you're feeling thrown around, remember that it is not because God is nowhere to be found. It is because God is everywhere to be found. And his love is relentless. Amen? Amen. So this chapter reminds me of two startling things. Number one, the love of God is much more dangerous than we ever imagined. I want us to really understand this. The love of God is furious. It's jealous. And it, what this means is that his, in his love, he is willing to risk your physical and material comfort to bring you into an eternal relationship with him. He's willing to risk your comfort, right? And, and you may be like, that's not cool. Why does God get to do that, right? Why does God get to do that? That's not fair. Well, he gets to do that because he's God, and you are not. I'm not God. He is God, and you're not. And so if you're struggling with that, if that's sort of like this tension inside you, don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel odd. That's been going on since Genesis 3. That has been the struggle since Genesis 3. That's what everyone wrestles with until they surrender to the one who created them. Until you understand that you're not wrestling against the goodness of God. You may chafe against something God is doing, but it's not his goodness you're wrestling against. You're wrestling against the relentless nature of God and the fact that you are not God. Simply. You're not God. The other thing I'm struck by in this chapter is the amazing wisdom of God. His wisdom. I mean, God is moving all through this story, right? And, and we haven't even started, right? We're just in the first chapter today. But at times in this story, it is like he is writing a symphony, right? You have all these characters and circumstances happening. And in his creative wisdom, God is like tying it all together. The Ninevites need a savior. They need to be rescued and redeemed from their sins and saved, right? And God uses their wickedness to reveal to Jonah the fact that he, the prophet, also has this radically rebellious spirit, and he needs to be transformed. God's using all these things. And he calls Jonah to Nineveh, and because Jonah exercises his free will and says, nah, I'm going to get on a boat, God says, well, great, perfect. I want to save these sailors, too. Guess what I'm going to come up with? Right? See, every time you get out of God's path, he is right there to respond with something intentional for the good of everybody around you. He, he will respond intentionally. And, and this chapter, when you read it, it's like this building song, right? The winds are blowing, the drums are beating louder. It's this song, it just keeps building. And it's like this symphony that just rises higher and higher and higher until that moment Jonah goes flying off the deck of the boat. And to me, the song just sort of like holds its breath in this one beautiful note. And God's wisdom is revealed in this massively orchestrated event. And yet it's also evidence of his amazing improvisational skills, right? Like he is a master of jazz, right? People are doing things, uh, and some of them, it's, it's against his will. And so he's like, oh, look what we're going to make out of this, right? He's beautiful. Nothing, nothing with God goes to waste. God uses everything for his glory, which means that uh, uh, the main idea of this, this chapter isn't really the story of a prophet on the run, but it's the story of a loving, merciful God 
that wishes no one to perish. He, was, he wants everyone to come into repentance. And he doesn't cause suffering, but he will redeem the circumstances of our lives. And believe me, he will discomfit you if your comfort is leading you away from him. He's not afraid to do that. Your comfort is the least of his worries when you're not walking with him because he loves you too much to just let you continue without trying something. So look at your life. Look at your path. Recognize that God, God is in all of it. He is there. You might have tried to run from him. He's still there. And he's not there as some angry God. He's there as this loving, merciful God, sometimes furious and raging in his love. But it is love. It is goodness. And it's, it's above and beyond what the human mind can fathom. That's the love you were made for. It's the love that was demonstrated so perfectly in the picture of our Savior hanging on the cross. In Romans 5, it says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, folks, is furious love. That's furious love. That is a God who is reckless, and he's coming after you. Christ came to jump in the water instead of us, to take our cross, to take your cross, my cross, on his back. And when we come to that moment, we recognize this, and we say, I can't run from God anymore. I surrender. And then we fall into that grace. We fall into that grace what is grace but just another manifestation of his love, right? That is what his grace is. It's just another manifestation of love. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's love. Amen? Sometimes furious. Sometimes a prophetic call to repent. Sometimes comfort. But it's always love. Amen? If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, you know what? Now would be a wonderful time to do that. You can do it right where you're sitting. You can accept him. It's a great time to surrender to him. Pray right where you're sitting. You repent of your sins. You receive his forgiveness. Father God, we come to you today. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your relentless love. We thank you for your furious love, even when it's uncomfortable to us. Father God, thank you. Thank you for never giving up on us, Father. We need your mercy. We're going to require it every day. We thank you for your grace. We require it every day. We thank you, Father God. You are the God who takes us and accepts us, Lord, as we are. But you don't leave us the way we're at. You change us and mold us, Father, into the image of your Son because you love us. Thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for giving us Jesus Christ to conquer death, conquer hell and the grave. We thank you, Father God, that you've saved us from our sins. We thank you, Lord God, that we get to take your love out into the world. We get to be an extension. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We get to spread that love to others around us, Father God. Thank you, Lord, that you make all things new that your mercy is new every single morning. We thank you, Lord God, that on the other side of death, there is a resurrection. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And so, all my best friends, I want to bless you this morning.
as our prayer partners are, are coming forward to pray with you about anything you may need from God this morning. May this be the year you truly stop running. May you open your life up to the reality of God and let him pour himself into you and use you in brave and furious and scary new ways. And may we all walk this out together. All of us. Nobody walking alone. All of us becoming disciples who make disciples. Amen? Running not away from God, but furiously toward whatever He has in store for us with no fear. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Grace and peace.